In just a moment, Elder Donald's going to come up and read the Old and the New Covenant readings for us this evening. But I want to say something about the Old Covenant reading uh, before we do that. And in some ways, it's really strange that I feel like I have to say this. But the world has changed in strange directions. Uh, Tonight's Old Covenant reading is about instruction in righteousness. That is fundamentally what it is about. It gives us a picture of what the Lord wants us to do and how he wants us to live in this world. That is, how do we glorify God and enjoy him? How do we love the Lord and love our neighbors? Turns out that life is really complicated. And it's a wonderful thing that God knows how complicated your life can be. The good news is, is that the Lord cares about your life. He cares about every aspect of your lives. And therefore, he has given you his word to address every aspect of your lives. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Perversely, we live in an age where even churchgoers have come to disregard this treasure that God has given to us. Indeed, even in our circles, there are those who take any sermon that talks about anything other than how you can be saved from your sin as though it is moralism. But beloved, it is not moralism to talk about God's word training us in righteousness and how we ought to love him. Thankfully, the Lord does care about saving us from hell, but he also cares about us being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ and living for his glory and our neighbor's good in this present age. I hope you all join me in rejoicing in this, rejoicing in God's word as in today's passage, that it contains training in righteousness for us, that you and I might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me just say, brothers and sisters, please do not allow the theories of men to rob you of the riches that God has for you in his word. The Old Covenant reading this evening comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. The word of the Lord. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, who, young man who was in charge of the, his, the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant 
who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman, women. Let your eyes be on the field that they, they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels, and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. The New Covenant reading this evening is from uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 to 16. Also the word of the Lord. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially to members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what should not, 
what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed from Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. Please turn with me once again back to the book of Ruth, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Is this to be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon? We all want to fit in, to have a sense that we belong, indeed more than belong, that we are appreciated by our group. Isn't that true about you? That you want to fit in, you want to have a sense that you belong, and you want to be appreciated. That desire to fit in and belong is not only natural, it is good. You were created to be in relationship with other people. And therefore, even if the fall had never happened, even if sin had never entered into this world, you would still have a God-given desire to belong and fit in with other people. But since the world has been plunged into sin, how that desire functions in our lives has become, shall we say, a bit more difficult to navigate. On the one hand, this desire can lead us to curb all sorts of poor habits, bad behaviors, can smooth off our rough edges. That's not only good for other people, that's good for ourselves as well. The problem comes when wanting to fit in and wanting to belong runs into bad or even wicked company. The Bible's not at all shy about addressing this problem. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, bad company corrupts good character. Now that's something that we often want to teach young people. And we should. It's a great benefit to you, a great blessing to you, if at an early age you come to understand that bad company corrupts good character. But I want to remind you this evening that the Apostle Paul was not primarily writing 1 Corinthians 15 to young people. He was including them, but those words are intended for the entire church. See, it turns out we don't stop wanting to fit in when we're 20 or 30 or 40 or 60 or 70 or 80. And bad company still corrupts good character. Let me give you an example. In some ways, this might seem like a harmless example. Uh, But I just want to give you an example that shows how much we all want to fit in with each other and how that shapes the way we talk about particular issues. I want you to think about how the people in your group or groups talk about global warming. Go ahead, think about that. Okay, here's my point. Most of the people in your group probably speak roughly the same way about global warming as each other. That is, their views have been conformed to each other, even though almost nobody in that group has any scientific background by which they can actually evaluate the scientific claims 
that go into what drives global warming and how big a risk it is. So it's an area where people lack expertise, but they all agree with each other. Now, if you bring that over into theology, it's very common. If you go from church to church, you'll find churches where everybody in the church is a six-day creationist. It has become a boundary marker. And it's not that everyone in the church is a six-day creationist, because they all spent years and years studying the complex issues about how to interpret Genesis chapter 1. It's because you're part of a group. So you conform to what the pastor says or one of your elders says, and everybody says, we agree. But the reason why we're saying we agree, whether it's global warming or often about other issues like theology, is because we want to fit in, we want to belong, and so we conform our responses and even what we believe to what the group as a whole also believes. This desire to fit in and belong can also powerfully impact the way that we live in areas as diverse as whether we regularly attend public worship, are generous or selfish with our money, whether we care for or ridicule those who are different or less fortunate than we are, and so on. This sense of identifying with the group also leads to one of the oldest excuses known to man for bad behavior. Everybody is doing it. Beloved, if everyone is driving 70 miles an hour in the 55 zone, frankly, it is unlikely that you're going to get a ticket for driving with the traffic. In fact, most state police will tell you, just drive with the traffic, that's fine. But if everyone is rebelling against Almighty God, and you join in their rebellion, then you will simply perish with the crowd. It turns out that everybody's doing it does not cut it as an excuse before a holy and perfect God. So what are we to do? Tonight's passage, among other things, gives us an inspiring account which says, you can be an exception to your generation. Let me say that again. In an age where publicly approved values seem to be shifting nearly every week, you don't have to go along with the crowd by seeking the praise of man. You, yes, my dear sisters, yes, my brother, you can be an exception to your generation for the good of your neighbors and to the glory of God. And you do this by seeking the praise that comes from God rather than seeking the praise which comes from man. Verse 1 gives us a bit of foreshadowing regarding how Boaz was an exception to his generation. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Um, there's a Hebrew word in this verse that's really, really hard to, to translate uh, to capture its full meaning. And the ESV rightly says that Boaz is a worthy man. I think that's good. But I also like the older English expression, a man of valor. Right? He, he wasn't simply kind of a cream puff nice guy. This was a leader, a courageous man, who was a mighty man of God. He was noble of spirit and heart. 
and the Bible describes him as being worthy. So before we ever meet Boaz, we are told that he is the kind of man that we would like to meet and that we would love to have as a neighbor. Now, in spite of the foreshadowing of verse 1, it's, it's pointing ahead, what we move to next is not the story of Boaz, but the story of Ruth and Ruth's interactions with Naomi. What would the Jewish people have expected from Ruth? I wonder if you ever stop and ask that question. Uh, one of the problems we have is you know the story, and you know Ruth is this remarkable person. So when you hear Ruth, you think, oh, I love Ruth. But what would the Jewish people have thought when Naomi comes back with this Moabite woman named Ruth? A lot of them would have thought she's heading right down to the red light district, if there was such a thing, in ancient Bethlehem. I mean, that's precisely the sort of thing you would have expected from the Moabites. And every culture has those sorts of prejudices. Uh, It would surprise me if you have a range of acquaintances that at least some of them wouldn't say things like, you know those, those immigrants coming into America? They're all a bunch of lazy people that just want to be on welfare. They're, they're all going to come here and do all kinds of crime and just take our money. Now, you could tell them the facts, the facts that actually the reason why people want to come to America is for work. Overwhelmingly, that's why they want to come here, to get a better life for themselves. And many of them are actually escaping very difficult circumstances in corrupt countries where they're coming from. But if you do that, you're going to find out that the facts usually don't change people's prejudices all that much. But in the case of Moabites, this is not just prejudice. The Moabites were, in fact, infamous for their sexual immorality, going all the way back to the days of Exodus, and it continued right on to this time. After all, they were officially pagans. Pagan religion and sexual immorality, frankly, often go together. And yet Ruth is different. By the grace of God, Ruth has become a worshiper of Yahweh. In an age where rank-and-file Israelites were living lawless lives, it is the Moabite convert to Israel, Ruth, who shows us what it is like to be a godly exception to our own generation as she was to hers. First, I want you to see in the passage that Ruth takes the initiative. She says to her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. See, trusting the Lord does not mean that we don't work hard. Actually, trusting the Lord should motivate us to work hard, knowing that the Lord blesses the labor of our hands. And in fact, Ruth was taking advantage of the biblical law about gleaning as the means by which poor people who didn't have fields of their own could still support themselves through their own hard work. Um, The Lord had required in the law of Moses that landowners were only allowed to harvest a field once. They weren't allowed to harvest a corner of the fields. And the issue was they weren't allowed to go back and go, I could squeeze a little bit more profit out of this field if I go back over it a second time. And what they would do is they would leave the, the, the leftover crops, as it were, and the poor and the alien in the land, they could come through and harvest that food, which belonged to the Lord, and take it to themselves. Now, I want to say that 
Um, the modern world is very complicated. We can't just put a system like that into practice. But I hope you can see the wisdom of this law. For one thing, it required the poor to work. It gave them the dignity of work. Um, the, the system that we have for doing public welfare um, actually is really a very inhumane system in many ways. Uh, I worked with disadvantaged and delinquent teenagers for 10 years, and the system itself actually puts people um, into a subhuman category. You get handouts from us, you should be grateful for it, but it doesn't really prepare them for a better life. You know, one of the things is a worker like Ruth, who's a poor person who goes works in the fields of Boaz, she works really hard, she shows she's a good person. The landowner could look at her and say, I'm gonna hire her. And now she's gone from someone who's picking up the leftovers to being a hired employee. It's a very wise system, but it only worked, of course, if the landowners followed the word of God. I do think there is a ramification for us if we're in the position of being business owners. We ought not to treat workers like they are commodities to be purchased at the lowest possible price. Yes, our business should be efficient. Yes, you should have expectations of your employee. Occasionally you met people that were bosses, owned businesses that became Christians, and they suddenly thought that meant they should be soft on all their employees and allow them to do whatever they wanted to because they didn't want to be judgmental. That's actually to fail to treat your employees as they are. People created in the image of God. You should have high expectations for them and help them meet them. But as an owner of a business, we ought not to squeeze every last dime out the end at the cost of our employees' dignity. I mentioned that Ruth courageously took the initiative when she went out into the fields to glean. In terms of initiative, please consider the physical difficulty of the work that she was hoping to find. Um, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm 61 years old. I am not going to last very long bending over and picking vegetables and fruit, in this case they were doing the barley harvest, out in the field all day. I'm going to get exhausted. I wouldn't be able to do it for the entire day. And she wasn't just going out into the harvest, she was going out to get the leftovers, which would make her work even more difficult. And yet she was committed to going out, working hard in order to receive the produce that she and her mother-in-law, Naomi, needed. Furthermore, you have to consider the times in which she lived. Um, Israel was not a paradise, it was a lawless nation. This is the period of the judges. The judges is a lawless time in Israel. The refrain we keep hearing is, is instead of people doing what God says, everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. She was heading out into a time like that without any knowledge <clears throat> that she would be protected from being harassed by the young men of Israel. She could have expected to be mocked and harassed, or even something much worse. But Ruth took courage, and she entrusted herself to Yahweh. So first, Ruth courageously takes the initiative. Second, Ruth is an extremely hard worker. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Boaz asks about this young woman, 
who was working in his fields. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Um, one of the interesting things I discovered in preparing this sermon is uh, I already knew that in the Jewish scriptures, remember they're originally on scrolls, we're used to books, and so the scrolls could be arranged in different orders, and I knew that. But one of the common orders for the uh, books of the Old Testament placed Ruth right after Proverbs 31. Now that should strike you because Proverbs 31 is quite famously this passage that describes this idealized woman. The way Proverbs 31 was designed to work in ancient Israel was a way of talking to young girls and saying, this is what a godly young woman is like. And it was a way of talking to young men saying, that's the sort of godly young woman you want to marry. And right after we see that, we have the book of Ruth. And what's really interesting about that is Ruth is the only woman described in the entire Old Testament with, with this particular word that means valiant. Right? She's a remarkable example of what it is to be a godly young woman. If you ask yourself, you know, I'm reading through Proverbs 31 and I want to know what this looks like in real life. Beloved, it looks like Ruth. We need to teach our covenant children that the willingness to work hard is a really important virtue to cultivate in their lives and it's also a virtue to seek in a potential spouse. You do not want to grow up to marry someone who has a really good tan but no work ethic. That is an unbiblical approach to seeking a spouse. Third, Ruth approaches life from a standpoint of gratitude rather than a standpoint of entitlement. She said in verse 7, Please let me work in your field. She does not say, I have come to work in the field as the law requires you to let me do. Right? She's deferential. She knows the law, but she's saying, please allow me to do this. It will be a mercy that you show me. And when Boaz shows great kindness to her, I'll look at verse 10 to see how Ruth responds. Verse 10, Boaz has shown great kindness to her, and then we read, Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? See, she's willing to work hard, she's courageous, and she's grateful rather than entitled. And finally, we see the capstone of what made Ruth so remarkable. And this is what really drives everything else. Though Ruth was a Moabite by birth, she had fully entrusted herself to the Lord as her God. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me to see how Boaz responds to Ruth's question. Right? Ruth's going, why are you so kind to me? And Boaz says this, 
all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Beloved, that is the key to Ruth's entire life. She had come to take refuge under the wings of Almighty God, the Lord, the God of Israel. Beloved, that's the key for us as well. At the heart of being a positive exception to our generation is not a more detailed to-do list. It is not a more profound set of resolutions in our life. At the heart of being an exception to your generation is knowing the Lord and trusting him. Entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ, body and soul is your faithful savior, and taking shelter under the shadow of his wings. The reason why peer pressure is such a powerful influence on our lives is because we want the acceptance, security, and praise of other people. As I mentioned at the outset of tonight's sermon, the alternative is to seek your praise, security, and acceptance not from men, but from God. But that's something we actually need to do. Acceptance is not a bad thing. Praise is not a bad thing. The problem we have is if we're seeking it in the wrong place. So how do we stay on track? Ultimately, this is not a matter of working harder to be good people, but of desiring the praise of God more than we desire the praise of man. Ruth has staked everything on the goodness and grace of Yahweh. She's left her homeland, her mother's house, her people. She's traveled to the promised land knowing that it was a mess. This is not a glorious time in Israel's history. She's entrusting her entire life to the fact that Yahweh is her Lord and he will care for you. So I have to ask you the obvious question. What about you? Whose praise are you seeking on a daily basis? Now one of the great things about being willing to stand alone for God is the discovery that the Lord never has to stand alone When we take a step and say, I need to take a stand on this issue for the glory of God, we find out there are other people willing to stand with us. And that's true with Ruth. Remember, Naomi, her mother-in-law, is not living a godly life. She's bitter against God. But when Ruth steps out in faith in God, she encounters Boaz, one of the greatest men of God who has ever lived. If Ruth were the only noble character in this story, it would ultimately be a type of tragedy. But in God's providential care, Ruth finds herself in the fields of Boaz. Boaz is a genuine man of God, and he is a remarkable exception to his generation. Um, We see this when we first meet Boaz in verse 4. By the way, here's an important tip 
um, a bit of guidance. This applies whenever you're reading the Bible in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew narratives, the first speech that a person makes is almost always significant. Right? So the first time you hear someone speaking in the Old Testament, pay attention to that. It's usually going to mark out their character in a particular way. The very first thing we hear from Boaz is this. As Boaz comes from Bethlehem to his fields, he greets his workers. The Lord be with you. And his workers respond, the Lord bless you. Now, if you were to go through the land of Israel at that time, you could hardly believe a place like this exists. This little island of righteousness. One farm, one owner of the land, one group of workers who are a dramatic and shining example to their generation that you don't have to just do what everyone else is doing. The Lord bless you. That wasn't a church greeting. This is when he's coming into the fields and he sees his workers working. What I want you to see here is, in all likelihood, the reason why his workers respond, the Lord bless you, is God had used Boaz's godly example and leadership to spread the good news, to spread a different way of living, so that these workers are, by his example, increasingly being conformed to the will of God. The very first word we hear out of the mouth of Boaz is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh had first place in Boaz's life, in Boaz's speech, and in Boaz's business. Boaz is a remarkable man of God and a dramatic exception to his generation. As I say, the response of Boaz's workers, Yahweh bless you, paints sort of an idyllic picture of life in Boaz's field. But I do think it shows us something else as well. Just as evil spreads, righteousness spreads too. People want to belong. Now, some of you are in positions of leadership in your life, and it turns out people naturally want to conform to leaders. Because as they want to be accepted by people in their group, they want, they want to be accepted by their boss, right? Or by someone who's distinguished as an engineer at work and so on. Your influence is probably far greater than you realize, and you don't have to come up with a plan. All you have to do is live for Jesus, and it will change the way other people live. Jesus puts it, you are salt and light in this world. You don't, have, you don't need a plan. All you have to do is be salty and let your light shine. The servant in charge of Boaz's field had granted Ruth's request because he knew his master's heart. One of the ways that we see how Boaz was a man after God's own heart is in how he doesn't limit himself to merely fulfilling the external demands of the law. Um, the law required Boaz to allow Ruth and other poor people to glean in his fields. It would be very easy for Boaz to say, yep, I, you know, my neighbors, they don't do that, but I'm keeping the law of God. But actually, Boaz went way beyond what the law required. 
A merely religious man could have congratulated himself on how he allowed gleaners to work in his field and to gain food that could have been his. But beloved, that is not Boaz. Boaz knew that the field belonged to the Lord. He knew that the produce of the field belonged to the Lord. And Boaz knew that he himself belonged body and soul to the Lord. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Not surprisingly, Ruth is deeply moved by Boaz's kindness to her. Ruth is, in fact, very mindful that she's a foreigner, and frankly, a foreigner from a despised people. Yet Boaz is taking her in and showing her great mercy, a kindness for which she expresses deep gratitude. And so Boaz responds by telling Ruth that he has heard about how she has abandoned her homeland in order to sacrificially care for her mother-in-law. Then he adds, the Lord repay you. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The very first thing we ever hear from Boaz is, the Lord bless you, which is the greeting that he gave to his workers. Now he calls on the Lord to bless Ruth in repaying her for her covenant faithfulness to Naomi and to bless her because she has entrusted herself to Israel's God. Have you ever said something like that? You have someone that's become a new Christian or something? How do you pray for them? Do you you pray that the Lord would bless them in particular? as they're being cut off in some ways from some of their former classmates, their former friends. Perhaps they feel isolated. But the Lord would particularly bless them by knitting them into the family, which is his church. I think that's a good thing to pray. But what makes Boaz so special is that when he asks the Lord to bless Ruth, he begins to think how he might be the means to the Lord doing that very thing. He doesn't say, oh, I prayed for her. He, He prays for her, and then he sees how he might be the instrument of the Lord answering his own prayers. So at mealtime, Boaz does not tell his servants to bring this Moabite some food. He has this foreign woman come and eat at his own table until she is full. Now, the direct relationship there between Boaz and Ruth would have been touching to Ruth, but it also would have been a signal to everyone else that worked for Boaz. She's accepted. You see what I'm doing? That's what you ought to do with Ruth as well. Then look at verses 15 and 16 with me. When Ruth arose to glean, 
Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. You see how Boaz is going way beyond the call of duty. Not just the leftovers, but with everyone else. And actually, I realize she's taking care of her mother-in-law too. Pull some out. Make her labor easy for her, or easier for her. It wasn't easy. So that when she goes home, she will go home with an abundant supply of grain. What was Boaz doing? Let me suggest this is precisely what Boaz was doing. He was doing justice, he was loving mercy, and he was walking humbly with his God, just as the Lord has called each of us to do as well. So once again, I have to ask you to examine yourselves. What about you? Is this the way that you treat the stranger? Is this the way that you treat the downcast? Is that that the orientation of your heart? Well, there you have it. Ruth and Boaz shine like stars as righteous exceptions in the midst of a wicked generation. Their lives inspire us, and frankly, they're intended to. That's an important part of this story. We ought to leave here tonight and ask, how is my desire to fit in and belong impacting my life? Am I seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness? Or am I trying to enjoy as much of the passing pleasure of sin as I can while still appearing respectable? Am I seeking primarily the praise of men or am I seeking the praise of God? Ruth and Boaz remind us that our circumstances do not need to determine our character. Ruth and Boaz are shining encouragements that you too can be an exception to your generation. But there are two more things that we must take from tonight's passage. First, Ruth and Boaz are not merely good people. They are God's people. If you were with us last week, I pointed out that Orpah is what we would call a good person. She loved her husband. She was faithful. She sacrificially loved her mother-in-law. She was even willing to come back to Israel with her mother-in-law, although it would have been very costly for her. Orpah was a good person, but she was a pagan. She was not one of God's people. We would have been happy to have Orpah as a friend or a neighbor or as a colleague, but Orpah was not a light shining in the darkness like Ruth and Boaz. She had no power to do that. The difference was simply this. Ruth and Boaz knew and loved Yahweh, while Orpah did not. Frankly, being nice is important. You're nice people. I appreciate that. But niceness is not the gospel. If you want to be part of God's plan to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ, you must know and love Jesus Christ. And if you do not truly know and love Jesus Christ... You're not going to be an exception to any generation. 
But if your heart is oriented to love, to know, and to grow in your knowledge of Christ, you will be an exception to any generation and any group that you happen to be a part of. Second, while Ruth and Boaz are heroes in this story, they are not the hero of this story. From a human standpoint, Ruth just happened into the fields of Boaz. But Ruth is written in a way which makes clear that it is the Lord who is guiding her steps. Indeed, that the Lord is guiding all the details of history that will lead up to the birth of King David and ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Beloved, loving Jesus will cause you to be an exception to your generation. Knowing that Jesus loves you with an everlasting love and that he is exhaustively in control of every single detail in your life will cause you to shine brilliantly like stars against the darkness of this present age. As we frequently confess from the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Beloved, do you want to lead a life that matters for good? Of course you do. Then get to know Jesus better. As you come to know Jesus better, you will love him more and more. Know that the Father loves you in Jesus Christ. Know that not even a hair from your heads can fall to the ground apart from his fatherly care. Know that he is working all things for the good of those who love him, and this will change your life. And perhaps like Ruth and Boaz, Almighty God will use you to change the world. Now you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, I am way too insignificant for God to do that with me. But beloved, that is precisely what Ruth would have said as well. Amen.